This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, I'm Aaron Weinacht, and as always, I'm here with the New Books Network, the uh, Russian and Eurasian Studies section. And uh, here today we're talking with uh, Dr. Charles Halperin. Uh, you might recall a previous episode, we discussed a, a book he published a few years ago uh, about Ivan IV, or Ivan the Parable. And uh, this one continues that, that theme from a little different angle. It's called Ivan the Parable in Russian Historical Memory since, uh, since 1991. So uh, thanks for being on the uh, podcast again, Charles. Thank you. Yep. So uh, first off, you know, this isn't the, the standard, you know, history of uh, kind of book. So I thought maybe I could stop, start off by asking you, like, why do you thought this topic was important or how, how you came to write this particular book before we get into what you actually say in it? When I was researching what I will call uh, the historical Yvonne, I was struck by the enormous variety of opinions which had been expressed about him and also the extent to which those opinions reflected great changes in, in Russian social and cultural history. After I finally got that book done, I decided to pursue the historiographic angle uh, more comprehensively because the book is devoted, the first book was devoted to it historically, but I did not have the space to deal with historiography pretty much at all. And I'd done some articles, uh, but what I noticed was that the books about Ivan fall into two categories. Those that are addressed to specialists, written by specialists, and those that are written by, by sometimes by professional historians, more often than not by, by people whose main interest is political. And no one had ever tried to integrate those two bodies of literature. Uh, professional historians of Ivan, by and large, even in Russia, disregard the amateur stuff. And the specialists in modern Russian culture who read some of this stuff and do a great job of placing it within the context of changes in Russian culture 
are just not proficient in medieval Russian history. They don't know enough about Ivan to be able to situate a distorted view of Ivan from what an undistorted view of Ivan would be. So it occurred to me I was in a unique position because of my uh, expertise in Ivan and my obsession with historiography to combine the two in a single book, which would provide specialists in Russian history with a better appreciation of Ivan's role in modern Russian culture and provide specialists in modern Russian culture with a better appreciation of where those works on Ivan stand in terms of the great historiographic tradition of studying Ivan the Terrible. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, since you put it that way, it's not, a, it's not a book anybody could write. No, uh, no. In fact, nobody else probably have the patience. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's uh, this is this is going to be difficult to uh, to get to over a over a podcast format. But if any anybody listening decides you want to have a look at the book, yeah, it's quite uh, quite detailed. You can tell that the author had a good bit of a uh, bit of patience there. Uh, so first off, uh, maybe you could go over your section there at the beginning where you kind of categorize different kinds of sources between the. Uh, one's turning a kind of uh, hagiographies and demonologies, so to speak, or sources that are ultra hostile all the way to ones that want to have uh, Yvonne canonized. Like, why did you decide to just divide sources up the way that you did? And maybe you could provide an example or two of sources from those different categories. If you look at the historiography on Ivan the Terrible, it's a fairly safe bet that if you compare, there, there are no two books which agree about everything. There are so many issues involved and so many technical problems in terms of sources. That's just impossible in terms of human nature. The result was that trying to generalize about what was being written about Ivan proved to be impossible if you got into the, got into the details because everybody disagreed with everybody on everything. So devising a topology was, was a defensive reaction on my part because there was no other way to generalize. Uh, people can agree on 90% and disagree on the other 10%. So I had to create very broad schools uh, or uh, of rubrics in order to make some sense out of the, this vast, chaotic mess of historiography that I'd read. Part of the distinctions is not just what is said, but how strongly it's said. Ivan brings out strong emotions in people. And the people who can moderate their opinions are, wind up creating an impression which is quite different from the people who are not trying to, to restrain their polemical inclinations. So I started, the two extremes are the easiest to identify. The apologetic are people who just make up excuses for Ivan. The people who want to canonize him, make up excuses for him from a religious point of view, the neo-Stalinists, want to apologize for him because of their, their status uh, uh, pre prejudices. Same is true for uh, historically before 1991 with all great Russian chauvinists. And the people who are hostile to him are overall opposed to autocracy. Uh, historically, they've been liberals and, 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 and leftists. And so in a polemical version, you get someone like, uh, like Yanov, whose book was quite famous for a while. And what you get from them is a, uh, 
very one-sided, what I call black book about Ivan, in which he's just plain evil. And you don't need to explain anything he did or why beyond the fact that he's evil uh, or insane. But there are people on both ends of the spectrum who don't go whole hog in. Uh, so instead of being apologists, they're positive, but they admit that Ivan had his downside. Most of the books by professional historians uh, that were written in the Soviet period by people who, who managed to maintain their integrity, like Zemin and Skrinnikov, had to adhere to a general line that what Ivan did was progressive in Soviet terminology, but they managed to mention that he did some things which were really not very progressive. At the same time, the hostile group, uh, every once in a while, has to make concessions to things that they cannot deny and things which they did not necessarily disapprove of. For example, except for Tatars, or people writing from the Tatar point of view, even the most hostile critics of Ivan do not oppose the conquest of Kazan. Then you get a group which I created quite ad hoc in the middle, and that is a good metaphor for where they stand. They're in the middle. They're conflicted. They cannot make up their mind. And because they can't make up my mind, what they do is they present evidence of both, both positive and negative points of view and don't even try to reconcile them. This is what's called confusing. <laughs> uh, and the attributions of individual authors to these rubrics are in, time, uh, at, uh, in part arbitrary uh, and debatable, but it's the, the recognition of the spectrum of opinion which is the more important factor, that we know what the range of historiographic interpretations of Ivan are, all of which are in print, let alone also on the internet, in Russia today. And this is something which has never been true before, because until 1991, you really did not have a freedom of expression. Do, um, do you think that one of those categories, just by volume, you know, has has more adherence or uh, or the other? No, no, uh, because if if they did, the most popular historical theory in Russia would probably be uh, alternate the uh, uh, new chronology, which is pure conspiracy nonsense. Because he sold tens of millions of books, but what you don't know, and I deal with this a little bit in my conclusion, just because people buy books doesn't necessarily mean they agree with them. It means they enjoyed reading them, but that's different. Uh, I would not venture any conclusion as to what's the dominant view except among professional historians. You, you can tell what, the, what the, the limits, but also the extent of consensus is. And that is reflected in the chapter I wrote on textbooks and popular surveys, because textbooks and popular surveys are addressed to the widest possible audience. Uh, high school textbooks, of course, have an enormous audience. College textbooks are still quite significant. You look at the press runs and you can figure that out. And most textbooks, not all, but most textbooks aim for the common denominator. That is, they're trying to present the consensus view. And I was surprised, uh, although also to some extent relieved, to, 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 to look and find something which I had not expected. If you look at the textbooks and popular surveys, 
they simply exclude almost all the apologetic extremes of, of the spectrum. That is, in very many ways, reassuring, because the lunatics who get a lot of attention because they are because of their political prominence, and in part because of their, their very extremism, have not broken into the trade book market, with the exception of the new chronology, which is uh, uh, the freak market, the conspiracy market. Yeah, I think here was, I was going to ask you about that. My my guess is that probably most listeners will not have heard of the whole new chronology phenomenon. So I'm thinking that, that people might need a kind of primer on what that is. And then what I've you know, discovered, how fits uh, in you're that. absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Uh, the new chronology is an attempt to reinterpret Russian history through the 17th century. And by and large, it has not aroused much interest among specialists in modern Russian history. Uh, it aroused a great deal of interest among in Russia among specialists in medieval and early modern Russia because that's what's affected by his conclusions. The, basically, you can think of it as a conspiracy theory. And the conspiracy theory is that in the 17th century, the Romanovs rewrote all of pre-17th century history and covered up what they did not want anyone to know about. In terms of Ivan the Terrible, they decided that the Ivan the Terrible of the existing sources is a phony. Nothing happened the way the sources say it happened, because they were actually four different men ruled separately, whose reigns were combined under one rubric of a fictitious Ivan the Terrible. And only the advocates of the new chronology have been able to deconstruct that distortion of history and recreate what really happened before then. Uh, again, this is alternate history. This is conspiracy theory. One of the things which infuriated the specialists in 13th to 15th century Russian history is they deny that the Mongols conquered Russia. They claim that what was called the Mongol Empire was actually a Russian empire, which extended from the Pacific to well into Eastern Europe which was written out of history after it was overthrown by pro-Western Romanov czars in the 17th century. So you get conspiracy theory, Russian greatness, anti-Westernism, and a whole bunch of other stuff thrown in for good measure. This is the appeal of it. It appeals to a number of elements of modern Russian culture, which are very unattractive to many educated Russians, and particularly unattractive to Westerners who study Russian history. And it's enormously popular. Uh, it's got these published uh, books in, in the millions of copies issued. They have a website. They have they've done all sorts of things. Uh, despite the fact the books basically cannibalize each other. He hasn't said anything new in years. But they keep selling. <laughs> you know, that which is because they sell so much that the specialists in medieval and early modern Russian history decided they finally had to get together a couple of conferences and anthologies to respond to them. If nobody bought them, they wouldn't care. Uh, but uh, it, what people who do modern Russian history, who have heard about them, by and large have been smart enough not to take the time to try to delve into it because it takes an enormous amount of restraint to work through these theories and figure out 
how they're doing what they're doing, how they're perverting history. The creators of the new chronology are not historians, they're mathematicians. So is the uh, um, is what makes it a conspiracy theory then is that it's it's fundamentally not subject to disproof like the people who are writing about it can't envision of a state of affairs where they would be wrong? Theory because it argues that there was a conspiracy to rewrite history by the 17th century Russian rulers. So that is conspiracy is 17th century. Okay. I was just curious uh, if anybody has gone toe-to-toe with them and has gotten them to concede this or that point. Uh, the, the criticism has been totally ignored by the new chronology. They don't pay any attention. They don't pay any attention at all. The purpose of the criticism was to reassure the rest of us uh, that they were nonsense. Okay. Huh. That's quite a, quite an interesting uh, interesting phenomenon. So do you think that was was reinterpreting Ivan the Fourth's reign. Is that a, like a main objective of the new chronology, or is that just kind of a byproduct of some larger objective? Do you think? Uh, in 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 all cases of, uh, well, I'll say in most cases of alternative history, uh, the, the 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 objective is not historical, mind you. They pretend that it's historical. They pretend it's to tell the truth about Russian history. Uh, their purposes are not to increase historical knowledge, and by and large, almost entirely, they do not contribute one iota of legitimate scholarly knowledge about Ivan the Terrible at all. Their purpose lies outside Ivan the Terrible. Ivan the Terrible is a vehicle through which they can pursue agendas which are largely political, although political there is a, a shorthand because it can include religious uh, and cultural very heavily uh, as well. Uh, the purpose of pretending that Ivan the Terrible uh, was a Stalinist is not to say something about Ivan the Terrible, it's to legitimize Stalinism. So uh, maybe kind of wrapping up on the, the new chronology thing then, like what are they... Uh, the people writing about this, like, what do they see as success? Like, they, they imagine people reading their ideas and, you know, being persuaded. What do they think is going to happen if they that happens? They want to persuade what they're really doing. Uh, we tend to forget uh, in, 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 in reading what people have written to think about the problem of what people are reading. Uh what they're doing for the audience is reaffirming the audience's prejudices. Oh, okay. Uh, the audience who reads this derives in part from something when you could say the communists created, because everyone knows that communist historiography was distorted, and it made Russians. And this this is really the province of the cultural historians, and I'm just uh, uh, summarizing made them very distrustful of the government. So the tendency to disbelieve whatever the government says is very strong. I mean, it's not confined to Russia, but it's particularly strong in Russia. So what you tell them is what the government has been telling you about your history is, is it's all fantasy. It's all wrong. They're, they're derogating the cover-up and they're all liars. But beyond that, the specific uh, edge of the new chronology is to reinforce uh, 
basically anti-Westernism and all attempts to take a negative view of Russian history. They want to find a glorious Russian historical past in which Russia was far more important than the West. Indeed, Russia had conquered Western Europe, which has been covered up by the Russophobes who write Russian history in the West. That's, I was not... Um... Yeah, I was not at all familiar with that when I picked up your books. That was quite a uh, quite an interesting phenomenon there. Uh, I mean, obviously, conspiracy theory is is uh, you know not the province of one particular place, but one that's been that influential is 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 still quite uh, quite interesting. So, what um, maybe if we move on a little bit, then. Uh, what do you make of efforts to have uh, Yvonne canonized on the radical apologetic side of uh, side of things? Where uh, what function do those efforts serve? Uh, it's curious. It it it's basically a function is of 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 monarchists, uh, Russian Orthodox extremists, and anti-Semites. Uh, if if Ivan was the Ivan of the critical or hostile school, who would want to restore the monarchy? <laughs> yeah. It's not, not a good role model to follow there. And what they're doing is attacking the existing Russian government from the right, which is hard to imagine, but it's true. It's true. Uh, less so more recently, as the, the, the patriarch has gotten closer and closer to Putin, apparently, something I know almost nothing about. But the initial inspiration for canonizing Yvonne is to, to, to save the reputation of the Romanovs, of the dynasty, uh, and also to, to strengthen the, if you want to look at it this way, uh, the institutional linkage of the Russian Orthodox Church and the Russian state. Because if Ivan was pro the Russian Orthodox Church, then all Russian leaders should be pro the Russian Orthodox Church. So it's a it's a partisan interpretation, uh, and it's also an argument for giving the Russian Orthodox Church more influence, and for taking a harder line against people who are not supportive, against other re- people who are not supportive of the Russian Orthodox Church because they adhere to other religions. So if that's the case, then uh, why wasn't Ivan uh, canonized? Like what, what forces coalesced to prevent that it from happening? It just went a, te- a step too far. Uh, it was uh, advocated by a metropolitan of St. Petersburg, who was a rabid anti-Semite, among other things. And uh, it's not as the, the Russian Orthodox Church knew that there were too many intellectuals in the church who would simply not go along with that. The Orthodox Church is a, is a very, as I've learned, again, from people who know something about it, current Russian Orthodox Church is a very divided institution uh, with its own parties and factions and stuff like that. And the patriarch at the time was very cautious in criticizing the Metropolitan Ilan, but rejected the movement to canonize Ivan. What he wrote then was that you cannot canonize a man who created a Christian martyr named Metropolitan Philippe who was canonized. You can't make the victim and the oppressor both saints. Uh, and that was really the bottom line. 
Uh, it wasn't because, and they've been waffling on trying to save Yohan's reputation ever since. There are uh, uh, conservative historians who identify with Yohan's position on Ivan, but won't go so far as to advocate canonization. Uh, it's only people that there are very few people in the church who were willing to say outright that Yohan was an anti-Semite. Because there are too many anti-Semites in the Russian Orthodox Church, and in Russian, the patriarch doesn't want to antagonize them, basically. That's a very uninformed opinion, but it's the way it looks to someone who is hypersensitive on the issue of Russian anti-Semitism. So I suppose, uh, I suppose we could say that as far as the far end apologetic case, that's where the, the canonization issue is, where that pro Ivan camp kind of breaks down. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The people who, who uh, won't go that far have found ways to salvage the apologetic view without arguing for canonization. But remember that the apologetic view is not a homogeneous camp. Because the people from the religious right who want to wanted to canonize Ivan and are still very defensive about him have a very different point of view from the neo-Stalinists who, who, who have a particularly statist and secular interpretation of Ivan. The people who want to restore the oppression do not conceive of it as a religious institution. They conceive of it as a statist institution, uh, which we would call something like an extraordinary uh, or non a government institution outside the chain of command, which is basically capable of carrying out any order regardless of how illegal. And therefore, they approach what's good about Ivan differently than the people who wanted to canonize him did. And no one, to my knowledge of ever anything I've read, has really tried to reconcile those two. If you're if you're if you're pro-Stalin, you really don't want to restore the monarchy, and you're hesitant to argue, even if Stalin was trained in a seminary, for a Russian Orthodox Tsarstvo which would not enable you to pursue some of the goals you want, which which are purely statist. So uh, uh, so there are such things as neo-Stalinists. And so if that's if that's true, then could you go into some more more detail about what makes uh, somebody like Ivan uh, so uh, so appealing? Uh, Very simply, the Oprichtina. Uh, what the neo-Stalinists uh, worship is a strong central government, which is not afraid to take the necessary steps to, pre- to protect Russian national security. And that's terror. Uh, uh, even the Stalinists, neo-Stalinists who admit that Ivan Oprichna made some mistakes argue that if we do a terror again, we won't make the same mistakes. Uh, they're not opposed to terror in principle. Uh, they just got to do it right this time. Uh, in addition, uh, just Ivan's willingness to use uh, capital punishment, uh, his refusal to tolerate uh, any dissent, which is exaggerated, 
but uh, that is the interpretation. Uh, and of course, the uh, the myth of the centralized state it's, it's incredibly powerful. Uh, it, it goes against the grain of those of us who were brought up to respect the populist tradition in Russian political thought that populism, that the people, not all it comes first, the state second, has very little resonance in this historiography. The people who criticize Ivan say he was bad for the Russian people. The people who praise Ivan say he was great for the Russian state. And there's very little communication between the two points of view. I uh, feel free to... to uh, not answer this if you think this is going to take us too far afield, but uh, do you detect any uh, uh, neo-Stalinism in uh, current events? I don't know enough to answer that. Yeah, I, I kind of, I, as you were talking there, I thought, well, I'm going to raise the raise the issue, but that may, well, that may take is, us too, this is too the, far afield. Uh, the the, the, uh, the limitation of the book, if I can put it that way, uh, the purpose of the book is not really to relate uh, these various strands of popular thought to current Russian culture. It is to provide the material with which specialists in modern Russian culture can use this material more profitably. Uh, I, I draw on context from my limited reading of, of modern Russian culture uh, uh, to indicate the broad connections, but any detailed uh, correlation uh, belongs to people who know what they're talking about when they talk about Putin, which I do not. Just recently, I was reading some articles uh, which discussed the reaction of, of Patriarch Kirill and Putin to the 450th anniversary, this was in 2013, of Ivan the Terrible's conquest of, of Polotsk, which is now in Belarus, of course, it was Polotsk in the Grand Duchy of Lithuania at the time. Uh, and I was unaware of, 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 of any statements by, by Kirill or Putin. And Kirill, of course, makes the triumph of Russian Orthodox Christianity. Uh, Putin makes the triumph of, of, of great Russian nationalism. Uh, Ivan does resonate with current political spokespeople, uh, but exploring that in detail was beyond the scope of the book, in part for lack of expertise, and in part because most of the evidence he would look for would be on the internet rather than in printed materials. Yeah, I, I, uh, I hope that people will, will take that up, because I certainly, you know, had many points in the book where I, you know, was wondering, uh, about you know application to uh, contemporary Russian culture and uh, and so on. I uh, uh, I wanted to ask you uh, moving moving on here a little bit. You had a you had a chapter on the uh, the current state of uh, Ivan the Fourth studies, and you mentioned in particular spent some time on one symposium that took very much a kind of uh, I, I thought it was kind of an antiseptic approach to uh, to Ivan. And, I would call it uh, narrow-minded. Okay, yeah, or, you know, it's strictly limited or, or something <laughs> something like that. So it, it occurred to me when I was reading that that, you know, Ivan the Fourth having the reputation that he does, 
that there's kind of a fundamental tension here between an approach that's really trying to be strictly limited to what we can say for sure and the fact that the kinds of questions we want to ask about Ivan the Fourth don't seem to lend themselves to answers very well based on the evidence that's there. So is that a is that a tension you're seeing in, uh, in uh, Russian historiography? Uh, yes, yes and no. Yes and no. It, it is true uh, that a, a Russian colleague I was in touch with, I've been in touch with, pointed out to me that the current generation of scholars are not writing the kind of one-volume survey of Ivan the Terrible that I wrote in my first book and that a number of Soviet and post-Soviet historians had been writing. Uh, they're, they're less oriented towards the big picture and more oriented towards what uh, uh, sometimes called micro-history. Uh, you can't blame them. Uh, the fact is that the extant sources that we have do not answer the most fundamental questions we want to ask. However, that's never stopped anybody from asking them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Moreover, uh, to take a, a, a more benign view, uh, one of the premises of my monograph on Ivan was that he cannot be seen in isolation. He has to be seen within the context of everything else we know about Muscovy during the 16th century. What these micro studies do is add to our knowledge of 16th century Muscovite history. And we can then use that knowledge, or at least try to use that knowledge, to reformulate our approach to the big questions which can never be permanently and, and, and conclusively resolved. This is especially true in social history. Uh, if you look at uh, the, what was written, what I discussed in the chapter on military history, Military history has what I call a built-in audience. People are just fascinated with military history. I'm not. What interests me and what the anthologies that I the anthology that I discuss address is the social aspect of military history, which is essential in a country which spends most of its time at war. I mean, the history of the Russian army is the history of the Russian gentry. <laughs> because in the 16th century, the gentry were the army. The mounted archers of the gentry were the, the, the mainstay of the Russian army. Yes, there were specialists who were, who were infantry, who, had, who were musketeers. There were specialists who did artillery. But the bulk of the army is a mounted cavalry shooting Mongol compound bows. Uh, and they are overwhelmingly from the gentry, uh, which is the, the military class. Uh, the, the the economic and social well-being of the gentry is the measure of the Russian army. If you want to ask why they succeeded in battle or why they failed in battle, it goes back to the social history of the gentry. We know that Ivan the Terrible's wars devastated the gentry. So the people who were doing the narrow history of the Russian army during Ivan's reign are making a serious contribution to overall appreciation of the reign. Yeah, so, so I take it then that uh, you're pretty optimistic that at some point all those, those more specialized studies will enable some new perspectives in the decades down the road. That's a, uh, that's a, that's a hopeful note. Yes, they will be helpful. Uh, not, uh, 
short of discovering an archive that we've all missed, yeah. nothing is going to produce consensus, not in Russia, not outside of Russia, about Ivan Terrible. Yeah. Um, since you, there's a related question I wanted to ask you, and since you brought up the military, now's a good time to do that. Uh, you, um, in the book, you discussed some variant views of Ivan's military competence. So what, what kinds of range of opinions are out there on that? As you would expect, that he was totally incompetent, that he was a genius. <laughs> uh, neither is correct. Neither is correct. The sources deliberately omit anyone, Ivan, ever accepting an opinion from one of his advisors. The sources written from a monarchist point of view, which is understandable, attribute all all decision-making to Ivan personally, even when he was three years old. Consequently, we don't know if Ivan got good advice from his generals and took it, or if he got good advice from the generals and didn't take it. So evaluating his individual military skills is just about impossible. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You know, I, oh, I was thinking when you said that, that uh, I haven't read this in a while, but, you know, Dan Rowland wrote that entire article on the, the theoretical problem of advice in a, mm-hmm. uh, in an, in a, you know, in a, oh, it's a, major, a major issue for specialists. Yeah. Yeah. That's one that I've, uh, uh, I don't have necessarily any particular expertise, but it's certainly a uh, subject that's always interested me, just at the theoretical level, what you do with advice in an autocracy. Yeah. Uh, I was. Uh, I also wanted to, uh, to ask you, maybe we could... Um, uh, yeah, I think this is, this is a good transition here. Uh, you spent a little time on the book on a couple of somewhat different sources where you uh, you discussed that forum in Ab Imperio and in the, the Coleman book. Um, and I thought it might be listeners might be interested in uh, what view an Ivan as an imperialist, uh, you know, can and can't accomplish for us by way of trying to, to move forward in our understanding of him and his reign. What's what's going on in those sources that you think is worthwhile? The, the issue of whether Russia was an empire in both historiography in Russia and historiography in the U.S. is very polemical at the moment. Um, there are Russians who simply refuse to believe Russia was an empire because it means they're imperialists. Uh, this is not taken well by the nationalities they conquered. But it's not just confined uh, to Russia. In Russia, fortunately, there is an, a center, uh, there is a group centered on the journal Albinperio, uh, which has taken an imperial view of Ivan. Uh, they are capable of arguing that Ivan was influenced by the Mongol Empire, something which the Russian historians in Russia writing about the Mongol period are very loath to acknowledge. There are a few, but it's very much a minority opinion. 
The imperial perspective is uh, wide, uh, widespread in Western historiography um, uh, universally at the moment, as far as I can, I mean, from what I've read. In uh, applying it to Russia, it's been successful in, in calling more attention to the nationalities and in and trying to correct the Moscow-centeredness of the historiography. If you think about it for a moment, if you're going to talk about the provinces, you're going to wind up talking about nationalities other than Russians, because that's who lived there. Uh, my perspective is a little bit different, uh, because I, I, the imperial perspective has shed light on aspects of Ivan's reign that have been neglected, no question. This is... This is uh, uh, Andres Kappeler in Germany and Nancy Coleman in the United States did the marvelous work uh, you know, trying to redress that imbalance. And the Russians who were working on Ab Imperio are, are continuing to do so, and that's great. What I have trouble with is, 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 is what I call monistic interpretations of, of Russian history. If Russia was an empire in the 16th century, and it was, that does not mean everything that happened is explainable because it was an empire. For one thing, there are different definitions of an empire. The Imperial group defined an empire by how it was created. You conquer someone who's independent uh, and has a different uh, type of society and politics. Nancy Coleman defines an empire, as much Western historiography does, by how you administer the state. That is, you tolerate differences based upon different ethnic groups, cultures, languages, and so forth and so on. These two definitions are not mutually exclusive, but they make a difference as to what you're going to explain as imperial by how you define imperial. Moreover, there are some things which don't fit any definition of imperial. What struck me is very peculiar. And I thought to myself, no one but you would notice this, Charles. Neither... Uh, no one writing about the imperial approach to Ivan the Terrible's reign asked whether the Oprichtina was imperial. I mean, it's the single most unique institution created by Ivan, never duplicated in terms of using mass terror for a political instrument until Stalin. You would think you would have to integrate it into an imperial approach to Russian history. They don't. Hmm. Have uh, have you had any back and forth with those those scholars no, to try to no, answer that? No, I, 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 uh, well, with communication among Russian historians during the pandemic is somewhat limited. <laughs> uh, 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 I have not had the opportunity to 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 listen to why I'm wrong from my colleagues. Uh, there's a second factor involved here, uh, which is beyond my, my understanding of the theory of empire. Uh, and I haven't, I haven't been able to get very far analyzing it. My approach is that uh, Muscovy, uh, like Ivan the Terrible, were, were many things at the same time. It was an empire, but it was also a state, not an empire, which is not an empire. Uh, to the people at Imperial, the goal of creating an empire was to create an empire. When Nancy Coleman writes, it's, 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 it's I'm not, I don't think it's uniquely her idea, but she's the first person who's written it about Russian history that I've read, that the purpose of an empire was to finance state building, to come up with the resources to build uh, what used to be called a nation state nowadays, because we know that they were no 
modern nations in the 16th century, just to build a state structure, state building, state construction. That changes what you want to do, what you're looking for in an empire. But I don't know how. Uh, I suppose it, 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 it facilitates policies of tolerance, because if you're getting what you want from the region you conquered to finance your state, that you're satisfied. You're not trying to impose an imperial identity on everyone as long as they're giving you what you want. But this is an issue which has not, uh, I mean, I haven't seen that much response simply to, to the imperial approach to Russian history among Western historians, because most of it has been has, has applied, been applied to modern Russian history. You're talking about 19th and 20th century Russian history in terms of Orientalism. You don't tend to see many discussions of that that would be applicable to the 16th and 17th century. Yeah, and like you said, it's it's uh, it's, it's hard to see how the uh, uh, the the event of the Oprichnina would fit into that. But I would certainly be quite uh, curious to see somebody attempt to do so. Uh, and so I have to stay tuned on that one. I think <laughs> the uh, I will I will who knows maybe somebody else will write a book that does that and I can interview them. Uh, <laughs> I will, uh, More power to whoever tries. Yeah, More yeah. power to whoever tries. Uh, so shifting uh, shifting topics here a little bit. Uh, at the end of the book, you discuss some films. Of course, uh, Eisenstein's famous uh, film of multiple parts, as well as a more recent one. And uh, in particular, you talk about how Yvonne comes off in the films in general. But in, in particular... Um, I'm going to quote you here, if you don't mind. I was kind of struck by the final sentence in your uh, first chapter on films there. He said, according to Eisenstein, Yvonne became bad because I was he was trying to do good. And I was wondering, what do you think of that thesis? I mean, okay, it's kind of a general, you know, thesis, and maybe it's maybe it's trivial. I, I don't know, but based on my reading of the, the book we talked about last time, uh, that thesis actually seems pretty, uh, pretty likely to me. What's your reaction to that? Uh, first of all, it must be said that uh, opinions as to what image of Ivan Eisenstein presents are as polarized as opinions about Ivan. Uh, I'm sure that much of the ambiguity of the film which Sean Newberger examines brilliantly in a recent book, uh, was deliberate on his part. He was trying to protect himself. The fact is there are people who think that the film was an apology for Ivan, and there are uh, great Russian chauvinists who think that it pillories Ivan. It was written, made by a Russophobe, which is not as simple as simply as saying that, you know, part one's pro-Ivan and part two is anti-Ivan. Uh, and, and Newberger is absolutely right on that. Most of the modern scholarship has managed to, to transcend that dichotomy. Uh, the problem is that uh, if you don't know what the film is saying, how can you use it one way or another in your ideology? <laughs> it makes it difficult. I was reminded when you uh, raised that question of a quotation, uh, which is part of the common wisdom, about the road to hell. Paved with good intentions. 
the extremist hostile school argues, in effect, Ivan had no good intentions. He was just out for himself. This is highly implausible, simply enough because very few people are willing to admit that that, that ain't moral. And certainly political leaders, and I can think of one at the moment that I don't want to talk about, uh, never admit it when they're in power or when they're defending what they did. They always claim they're serving the general good. Okay, for the 16th century, that would be serving the faith uh, in Muscovite. I'm defending the faith. I'm not seeking my own power. I'm following the will of God. The fact, so I don't think that the argument that uh, Ivan intended to do evil because he was insane uh, or because he was uh, antichrist or because he was homosexual or because he was a sex pervert or what, that doesn't explain anything. On the other hand, saying that he had good intentions doesn't justify anything either. He still did what he did. Uh, and uh, you, you judge people by their actions, not by their intentions. So I don't think saying that accomplishes, I mean, I think it's true. I think it gives us some perspective on the limits of the hostile approach to Yvonne, but it does not change our evaluation of Yvonne. And that is what runs through, is a, is a thread that runs through much of the apologist literature that if Ivan was trying to strengthen the state, then he was a good guy. Never mind the fact that what he did wrecked the state. If Ivan was trying to propagate the faith, he was a good guy. If that meant burning heretics at the stake, well, his intentions were good. Uh, intentions are not enough. and you, you, don't, uh, you can't stop at identifying intentions. And there are, uh, among the canonized Ivan group, there's a group, there are a couple of historians uh, who uh, attribute, I think, more or less accurately, give it to Ivan the authorship of some, uh, of some canons. Uh, and the argument is, you know, if Ivan could write, you know, sacred literature, he must have been a good guy. Well, no. <laughs> I mean, that's just a very narrow-minded conception of human nature, uh, if we think of, uh, I mean, the fact that he could be a, you know, he's a great, great author. Well, there are great authors who are monsters. I mean, you know, where are you coming from on that? There's no guarantee. Ivan was a complex man. The problem with the polarization, uh, polarizing theories, and the problem with historiography is we're looking and basically failing to find a way of reconciling the different elements of Ivan's character. And I'm not sure it's the job of the historian to try to balance the scales. I leave that to God. You know, was he more good than bad? Was he more bad than good? I don't know. He was bad enough, as far as I'm concerned. And if you don't admit that, you, you're, you're just distorting the history. But it's not the job of the historian to take out the, the scales on Judgment Day. <laughs> Is uh, when... Uh, you correct me on the date, but you also discuss a newer film, a newer Russian film about Ivan. I think it was maybe 2008. Yes, I think uh, about that. And uh, so does does that film provide any kind of nuance around Ivan's character? No, it's just, it's just a film version of the hostile view of Ivan. Ivan, Ivan is insane, cruel, barbaric, vicious, and... and, and uh, that is the entirety of Ivan. 
the the failure of the film is that it overlooks. Uh, it may, well, it may be accurate on Ivan's faults, flaws, and sins. It does not explain. It does not attempt to acknowledge that Ivan was charismatic. The uh, Lungin's Ivan is a, is is pathetic. He's he's a, a shriveled up old man uh, who has nightmares. Uh, uh, that not the impression Ivan made on people in you know, on Russians or Europeans who came to Muscovy. Uh, Ivan had a presence. Uh, if we can move beyond the the the. the calming view that that all charismatic people are good guys, which is obviously not true. Uh, it does not apologize for Ivan to admit that the man was man was charismatic, and that is a the kind of question which has very broad applicability, not just to Russian history, but just to the history and and current events. Charismatic people can be good. Charismatic people can be bad. Charismatic people can be both. And it's only by acknowledging the complexity and contradictions of Ivan that we can make better sense of him rather than looking to find, to discover an Ivan which is, who is all one or all, all the other. Is, uh, do you know, are there any um, hagiographic treatments of Ivan in films? Uh, well, there are some people who think that part one of, of, of Eisenstein is. Oh, I, but yeah. I, right. But I do not know of the, uh, I do not know of a film which, which, which glorifies Yvonne. Mm. Uh, Stalin thought Eisenstein would make one for him. Stalin was very wrong. Yeah. Uh, there are some silent films, my, my, which I know too little about. Uh, they are negative. There are films of Russian operas. We would not say that those those operas glorify Ivan. They simply present one side of his actions. Uh, I mean, anyone who's played by Shelyapin is going to have a good reception in the audience. Uh, but no. Uh, and indeed, the biggest difference between Western historiography of Ivan and the spectrum of Russian historiography on Ivan is that there has never been a Western equivalent of the apologetics of Ivan. Yeah, you know, I, although I, I suspect some propaganda during yeah. World War II when we were allied with the Soviet Union might come close. It never got that far. Never got that far. Yeah, Joseph, um, Joseph Davies never had a chance to make a film about You excuse things when you're you're fighting Nazis. Okay. I, we, we get that. We get that. Uh you would think it would be very difficult to glorify Ivan, and unfortunately for many Russian authors, it's not. So, you know, reception is, of course, as you've remarked previously, a hard thing to gauge. Uh, what was your perception, if, if you were able to get one, of the, uh, of the uh, you know, the bad Ivan film, the, the, the more recent one? I mean, was that, was it a hit? Did, did it, it was popular a enough to infuriate the people who wanted to canonize him. Okay. Uh, it was viewed in theaters. It was shown on television. There are CDs and DVDs. Uh, from the point of view of the apologists, there are far too many people being, can we say, influenced 
by that view of Yvonne. Which I think is a good thing, but never mind. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I suppose we could... Uh... Uh, we could put that down as, uh, you know, two cheers because we're erring on the side of caution, I guess. Yeah, uh, I could uh, I could see that. I, I managed to watch a little bit of it. I found it on, on YouTube. They uh, they certainly got a lot of mileage out of uh, Malhuta. Um, oh, his, uh, the, the henchman in the uh, the Upper Janina. Uh, it Saskaratov, thank you. That was the name I was, uh, I was yeah, missing. He's he, an easy target. Yeah, uh, but uh, there are uh, there there are many other representations of Ivan on screen. There was a what we would call a mini series of Ivan on Russian television, and I have never managed to watch more than about five minutes of that. Uh, uh, but it was not glorifying Ivan uh, by a long shot. Uh, uh, a mini series, the twelve episodes on Ivan that begins with the Crimean Tatars burning Moscow, is not taking a positive view of Yvonne's reign. <laughs> no, uh, not what no you'd begin not. not what you'd begin with. Right. But there's a great deal more research that could be done by people in modern Russian culture on Yvonne's image uh, as something of a bellwether of, 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 of Russian culture. Uh, there are, in uh, what, as far as I can tell, four leaders of Russia about whom you can say that if you know someone's attitude towards one of them, you know his attitude towards Russian history. And those would be Ivan the Terrible, Peter the Great, Lenin, and Stalin. Uh, I mean, those are the, 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 the key hot-button figures over the course of Russian history. Uh, my impression is that for Ivan the Terrible, precisely because of the... Uh, time span that's elapsed since his reign and the nature of the sources, Ivan, uh, images of Ivan reflect Russian culture more than they influence it. Uh, you, were, you were asking about, you know, what difference does it make what people think about Ivan? And the answer is, it, it, what difference is what it tells us about what they really think about Russian history. Uh, the circumstances in Russia, the absence of, 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 of censorship, private publishers, and above all, the internet, means that uh, audience preference is a matter of choice. Uh, to put it differently, uh, what the book on historical memory attempts to demonstrate is that Russians can choose which historical memory they want to have of Ivan. And what they choose is based upon what they already believe. And they just project it onto Ivan. If you look uh, the, most clearly at the... Uh, canonize Ivan group. They believe that Russian Orthodox Christianity is, is, is Russian history, and therefore all good rulers are uh, emphatically Russian Orthodox Christian extremists. And that is the Ivan they, they portrayed. Ivan is an Orthodox Christian saint. They decided what they thought of Russian history before they applied that to Ivan the Terrible and himself. So it's a, yes, there's feedback but uh, use of Ivan the Terrible tell us more about the cultural views of the people who, 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 who articulate them than they do about Ivan the Terrible. Yes, I suppose in that sense, the fact that there's such a paucity of evidence about, evidence about him is, is more of a, uh, 
a feature than a bug, since the less evidence there is, the easier it is to say whatever you want about him. Absolutely. It oh. is almost impossible to prove or disprove anything. <laughs> right. All right. Was there, um, you know, we've kind of had a pretty wide ranging series of questions here, but is there anything that you think is pretty important about the book that the questions I've asked you haven't given you a chance to talk about? Uh, I just want to say that uh, it is an enormous chore to read all this extremist stuff about Yvonne. Uh, he brings out the craziness in people. And if, if I can save someone else from having to read all the stuff I've read, then I've accomplished yeah. something. <laughs> yeah, this is maybe you should have subtitled the book. I did it so you don't have to. So you don't have to. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you very much for uh, um, for talking to me about this. Maybe I should maybe I should ask you what, one more uh, quickie here since we're about out of time. Uh, what's um, what what are, what are you working on uh, now that uh I assume you're doing more work on, on Yvonne these days. What's uh, What kind of directions are you heading in at this point? Well, right now, having done both uh, monographs and anthology about the historical Yvonne and the book about the historiography of Yvonne, I'm sort of doing articles as they occur to me about both. Okay. So I have some articles in the works that are, that are about the historical Yvonne and some articles in the works that are about... Uh, the historiography of Yvonne. One of the most interesting questions, which I haven't completely gotten a handle on it yet, is what do we mean when we call Yvonne a tyrant? So uh, are you thinking like, you know, saying the, you know, in the strict Greek sense of the word tyrant? Or? Well, the problem with calling Yvonne a tyrant is we know that there are tyrants everywhere in every country in all periods. So if Yvonne is a tyrant, doesn't that make him more human? Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. tricky yeah, that is really is. tricky and if you want to argue Yvonne is atypical then you're making him less Russian but more human yeah, so I suppose in a way uh, you know a, uh, an article on a topic like that kind of goes in the direction of like the, the idea of Ivan as a renaissance prince where we're kind of where we're making him look more familiar rather than less Precisely. Right. So, well, that'll be interesting. I'll look forward to uh, reading that whenever it comes out. So thank you for uh, taking an hour or so of your time to talk some more about uh, Ivan the Terrible. You're very welcome. 